Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Luke Laherty, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Rask, how are you, mate? Good, mate. Good. Last time we caught up, I can't even remember what we were chatting about, but I, I remember saying to you off air that the number one podcast that we'd done, I think, for like most of the new financial year, recording this in late August, was a, just a, a story about like how to find multi-baggers. And it was part of a session that Drew and I had. So we didn't really pay much attention to it, but clearly like it's on people's minds. What does Drew know about multi-baggers? Well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> He's been buying Zipco and all these other things. So maybe multi-baggers in the opposite direction, but uh, now all power to him. Obviously he's like more of a portfolio investor, of course. And so today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about like the factors and the quality that goes into finding these businesses, but some of the math around it as well, which you've got heaps to bring. I thought maybe just to bring a bit of fun and liveliness to this, we could play a game. And I was just telling you, I haven't thought about my answer to this question either. So I'm winging it. That's good. That's a good, a good start. We each get a turn to pick a factor and it has to be like one factor. We can't be like return on capital plus dividend yield or something like that. It has to be yeah. one and we have to take turns. If we were going to build a watch list of potential multi-bagger stocks, whether it's on the ASX or globally, potential multi-bagger stocks, if you say something, I can't say the same one that you've said. I think the rules are pretty straightforward. Um, so it's I go, you go for multi-baggers, all right? Well, you got your show, you go first. because You want me to go first? I got lots of these, so I can do this, this all day. So you go first. So my first one is going to be five-year revenue growth. That's going to be my number one. Like Kagar, five-year, and you mean trailing or your forecast? Trailing, so Kagar, five-year. Yeah, like it, like it a lot. I think like I'm going to roll out sort of growth as earnings and revenue growth, and you can kind of talk about both. I think they're really important. At the end of the day, share prices follow follow earnings, and to have earnings, you've got to have revenue growth. You've got to be able to make sales. I think the caveat on that, and it's kind of like probably the axiom for bag investing or for, you know, going <laughs> for these sort of big winners. It's just as, as simple as can the company grow earnings, revenues and earnings without diluting shareholders? Literally that simple. And if they can do that, you, you're on a multi-bagger. So you've said earnings growth. Well, I'm going to say I, I'm going to expand on what you're saying and say you want to see 
the company making more sales and generating more earnings from those sales sustainably. And what I mean by sustainably is being able to do that without issuing capital or because, I mean, any company can go out there and generate high sales. Like you and I could sell subscriptions to this podcast. We could, I reckon we could sell a million copies if we spent $17 million on marketing next week. <laughs> now, that's not a sustainable business model. So one of the companies we're going to talk about later that I made a lot of money out of was Zip. But the problem with that business and why it's gone from 15 bucks to whatever it's trading at now, 50, 60 cents, maybe less, is for the simple reason that their business model, by the time they got to being a mature enough size to, for it to matter, there wasn't enough. It was costing them too much for every increment so when their revenue yields went down. So I think the model you're talking about is you're right. Revenue growth is really important, but at the end of the day, it's got to translate into, into earnings growth and that's got to happen without sending out a bazillion shares or spending a bazillion dollars on marketing. It's kind of like, you know, everyone loves a bit of red wine or whatever you drink, but you can't just live on red wine. You have to couple it together. So, Great vodka, intravenous. <laughs> so I'll get to my second one in a minute, but I want to put you down. I want to have you on record. I'm writing this stuff down. I want to put you on record for any, like what, if you could sum up what you just said in like a factor or an expression or something, what would it be? It would be earnings per share growth. But what I'm trying to describe to you is a high reinvestment rate. Okay. High reinvestment rate. That's a good one. It's kind of like your return on invested capital. That's like looking backwards in the lens. Looking forward in the lens, what that kind of means, it's the business's ability and it can fluctuate through time and it's not on a sort of a quarter or even on an annual basis. This is We're talking longer run stuff here. It's the business's ability to have earnings power, to generate more earnings, more profit, operating leverage, more profit from the same dollar of sales. And then to be able to take that profit reinvested in more sales and then generate more earnings again. And that's kind of the, the magic wheel, flywheel kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, I like it. A lot of people who know what they're talking about would talk about something like this because it shows that the company is able to sustainably grow, as you were saying. So saying that you've said high reinvestment rate, I might... Actually, no, we'll stick with you. What's your second one? If that's your first one, high reinvestment rate, what would you put as your second one? It's a qualitative one, but it's management skin in the game. And it's not just shares and not just long-term incentives and LTIs and that kind of thing. It's also next best alternatives. So when I, what I mean by next best alternative is I know a lot of financial advisors who if they weren't a financial advisor making three, four, five hundred grand a year, they'd be making three grand a month stacking shelves at Woolies. Their next best alternative is they don't have any qualifications. They couldn't get a job anywhere else. They don't really have any other skills. And in companies, I like to see businesses where people have given up high-paying, successful careers in safe jobs with superannuation and healthcare and punted it (laughs) and gone and started a business because that tells me they really believe in what they're doing and they've got the credentials to be able to make an investment decision like that. And that's exactly what it is. They're making an investment decision and you're following them in. So I think it's that founder alignment, founder-led, blah, blah, blah. But, like, if you were a rich kid from Turak and you started a business, don't matter to you. You know, mum and dad are going to bail you out anyway. Like if you're like me, like I've just used myself as an example, you know, my parents have got nothing and I'm from Scarborough in Perth and I started a business with every penny that I have and continue to reinvest every dollar that I make. Well, I'm probably going to be successful because I need to be or I'm going to be in bankruptcy court. So I just think those kind of people who have got it all on the line, I respect it first and foremost because I know how hard it is. 
But secondly, to me, it, it points to someone who's going to be successful, whether that's public or private, you know, makes no difference. I like that. I really like that. Next best alternative. And I don't think I've heard anyone put it like that. You've kind of taken it from me. Like that was going to be my number two. So <laughs> I think we're going to do, end up having four. We've got an eight. I think we're going to get four. Yeah, because I was going to say like number one has to be the people who run the business that you take care of. Like it, it's just like a no-brainer. But um, given that you've done that, I'm almost going to steal one of yours. I'm going to say lack of dilution. So w- the way I'll frame that is kind of like over five years, say, we'll say over five years, no, but the share count hasn't risen by more than 5%. And it comes back to what you're saying. Like if you've got a rapidly growing business, which was my number one, you don't just get that by just spending a heap on uh, sales and marketing. You actually run a business that you have a sustainable focus for. And what we've seen from the likes of Zip, by the way, are businesses that have just really blown up their share count. And it just makes it so much harder to become a multi-bagger, a sustainable multi-bagger, which we'll come to in a minute. So my number two, I'm going to go share count. This actually all ties in together though, Owen. You know, like a company that's really concentrated, owned by management or owned by the operators, they're not going to want to issue shares and dilute themselves out of the future upside. They're going to want to find alternative financing structures that are more aligned with shareholders. So, And then if they're successful, that means they're going to have the operating leverage and the leverage to the growth that we talked about. And that's what's going to drive the high reinvestment rate. So none of this is actually, I know it's like it's nice to give the four factors that are going to get you a multi-bagger and the headline, but at the end of the day, it's actually all pieces of like the jigsaw that kind of pop, like that kind of plug in together. Mm, yeah, oh, absolutely. And we'll come to it actually in practice in just a minute. Okay, so let's speed through these last couple. Let's just throw some factors out there, right? Because we've probably covered most of the major ones already, but you've got higher reinvestment rate. You've got management skin the game. So what would be three for you? If I'm being realistic, it's got to be small. Yeah, that's a good one. So, size, yeah. You can do this from... To do this from a billion or a two-bill market cap on the ASX is kind of hard and pretty rare. Like there's the odd one where you might be able to pick up something that goes from a bill to 10 bill, but you're certainly less likely to pick up something that's going to go from 10 bill to 100 bill. So I think, you know, it gets incrementally harder to generate that kind of market cap. You've got to be growing at an exorbitant rate and it's a lot easier to ride an earnings reinvestment story from 10 or 20 mil market cap to 200 and you can kind of do that pretty consistently it, not saying it's easy but just saying it, it is possible rather than yeah like the, the top end of town yeah absolutely so here's a question for you so for the seneca australian small companies fund yeah what is the market cap that you guys maybe you're not super explicit like we only hunt in this range but like Generally speaking, where do you find these types of, not these types of companies, but just the types of companies that end up in the portfolio? Yeah. So kind of companies that end up in the portfolio, we always think about things relative to our benchmark. So our portfolio's average market cap at the moment is 902 mil off the top of my head. The index, and again, top of my head, is like over a billion dollars average market cap. The average company on the ASX 200 uh, sorry, the ASX, uh, yeah, the ASX is growing at 5.5% CAGR over the last five years, uh, profits before tax. Like companies our portfolio are doing 40, 30, 20. We've got companies doing over 100% per annum growth because they're smaller. So I think it's really a case of just building something that's diversified enough to not leave you too exposed to, to any individual team, but concentrated enough that you're getting exposure to the highest growth, highest quality 
companies. That particular product can, can go anywhere and, and buy anything. It is focused on the smaller end of the market to generate those, those higher returns, but it is only open to wholesale investors, unfortunately, at the moment. Okay, so you've got high reinvestment rate management scheme in the game, small cap. I've got um, five-year revenue growth share count. And what I'm going to also do, I don't know if this is like some, it's not a fact that necessarily you can screen for, but I would say customer loyalty. So like it. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how you frame that. Like maybe it's like retention rate if they publish it. It's pretty hard to get a handle on this, but just knowing what that is with certainty or some certainty would be a brilliant. Like a lot of people don't really think about this, but it doesn't have to be a technology company. It can just be like a normal industrial business that gets a lot of repeat customers. So that would be my number three. Can I give you a line, on, a Luke Larrity line on that? You can stick it on a quote yeah. on the, your bumper sticker, but you want to buy businesses or invest in businesses that have a monogamous relationship with a high-value customer. So <laughs> that's my like go-to kind of line. I, I use it a lot, but I love my business, what I do at Seneca and looking and doing advice and, and running portfolios for people. I love that because my clients just use me. They can do stockbroking with us. We can run, you know, managed accounts and portfolios for them. We can give them financial advice and it, they only come to us. They pay us pretty handsomely to do it. We have a long-term relationship generally, 30, 40 years, sometimes multi-generational. That's the kind of company that I like to run and therefore it's also the kind of company that I want to invest in. I really love it. It seems like that's only come up to people's attentions in recent years with like the rise of tech and companies actually being able to publish a number, whether that's reliable or not. But Like the CAC LTV stuff. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. But it applies to basically any business. So customer loyalty would definitely be up there for me. All right. So you've got your fourth and final one. What is it, mate? Um, this is a boring one, but it's time. Oh, okay. I think investors in general have a really poor, not mathematical, not you don't know what it means, but I'm talking about core understanding, like the real, really know it in your blood and your bones of compounding and just how it works. And we've talked about reinvestment rates and we talk about things like ROIC and growth rates and, you know, customer acquisition costs and all, all these metrics and factors and everyone sticks them into whatever it is they use to screen the market and hope for the best. At the end of the day, if you were an REA investor and you didn't hold the stock for 17 years, you wouldn't have your 100 bagger. And in that time, you've had to have the intestinal fortitude and cojones to be able to stomach a 50% drawdown. So I think there's a lot of people who think they want to go hunting, big game hunting for these multi-bag opportunities. The reality is I just don't think many of them are cut out for it because it's actually not fun. And the reality is you've got to really have high conviction because the market and the price of those securities at a number of stages during the 10 or 20 years it's going to take for you to achieve this objective that you're looking to do with this particular company is going to tell you that you're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And as I say to clients all this all the time in this game, you are wrong until you're right. And that's just, it's you're wrong every day until, you know, stock hits your price target. So it's a, you've got to have really good conviction. You've got to have really done your work and you've got to be really confident in what you're doing to be able to give it that time. I really like it. And we'll come back to that in just a second. I'm going to round out my four with a growing market. And I know this is very 2020-esque of me, but um, a growing market does heal a bit of the wounds if you are long-term focused. 
And the reason that I won't, I wouldn't have put that there except you've taken a couple of my other ones. But um, <laughs> sorry, right? <laughs> Probably should rehearse these or you know actually do these. Two, you know, two oh, but I think that's the point, right? Because I was really interested in what you. It's like a game of chess. You're playing chess. I'm playing checkers. But yeah, <laughs> three dimensional. <laughs> um, so here we go. Uh, so I've picked um, like a five year revenue CAGR, like a constrained share count, because as you said, it kind of like hinders at the importance of like the management team's philosophy and the board, to be honest, customer loyalty, if you can measure that, and the, a growing TAM. Now, the problem that you have is when you pick this in Australia, if you go five-year revenue growth, typically, like you said, by the time you, you have clear visibility on a company's revenue growth, it's already like a $400 million company in Australia. And it's in the price. Everyone's paying up for it. It's, yeah. it's, uh, Whereas overseas, it's probably only a $10 billion company and probably has tens of billions to go. So that is that is a risk, which is why I try and talk about other stuff. I would also think about like return on invested capital. Neither of us mentioned that, but... We did. We did. Yeah. I mean, the reinvestment rate is kind of there. The problem that when you're very small in Australia, you typically are spending a lot. So if you go return on invested capital asterisks and you remove some of those variable costs that you know won't be there at maturity, I think you can get a real clear picture of a good like potential list. Finally, just on your list, you've said high reinvestment rate. I love that. Uh, management skin in the game, so the next best alternative, really good line, mate. Maybe big cojones should be number three, but I'll skip that and go to size because uh, you want the opposite of size. Uh, you want small caps. Like It sounds like under a billion dollars is the sweet spot for Seneca's like, hunting, even though you may go above that. We're going to go well lower as well, but yeah, that, that's the average at the moment. Yeah, so time in the market, time for look at, to study these companies is really important too. So that's our list. I'll publish that in the show notes for anyone that does just want a quick and easy list. Of course, we're going to say there's a lot more that goes into it, but that's just a bit of fun to get things started. So you prepared some notes for this, and I will share my screen in a moment for anyone that is watching. One of us did some prep for this podcast. Yeah, one of us did. <laughs> uh, I've got my, my my pen here, so that's about that's, that's plenty. <laughs> but you know what? People on the, the road shows, like people at the events, they ask me, like, what's one thing that you would look for? And if it was one thing, it would be your second one, which is management. Like, it would be like, that would be like my first thing. Like, who's running the damn thing? That's a really hard one to give out as a tip, though, because at the end of the day, I only know management because of the very privileged position I have where I can ring them up and say, hey, turn up at my office at 9.30. And I think it's you need to do a lot of, I mean, we would do like 20 management calls or video calls a week and God knows how many we'll do in a year and like reporting season, like I've got transcripts coming out the where's to read after this call. Like I, I just think that it's easy to say assess management, but it maybe unless you kind of know them personally, it's it's pretty tricky. Oh, it's so hard. And I think like between like Zoom calls, those analyst comp calls where they screen questions and all that stuff in advance, I think it's so easy to get misdirected in there. But I also still think that for multi-baggers, we kind of do buy into the personality of a lot of these types of CEOs and visionaries. So getting to know them is really important, I think, like just even if it's via distance. You've, in the beginning of your note-taking, which you shared with me in advance, thank you very much, mate, you said, why are multi-baggers hard to find? So everyone talks about them. Like we talk about them on the show, right? Why are they so hard to find? Why doesn't everyone invest this way? Why can't we all just go out there and, and stalk them and put them on the wall? It's kind of like what I mentioned. So patience, I think, is probably the first thing. You can be patient with something that generates 12% per annum for 20 years. You're going to 10x your money or just under 10x your money. So 
you can generate a double your money is 8% return for 10 years, just roughly. So having a multi-bagger or, you know, multiples of your money isn't actually that kind of big of a deal if you've got a 20-year horizon. You'll probably do it, to be honest. So I think when people talk about multi-baggers, what they're talking about is a lot of hindsight kind of bias. Like, I wish I bought this one. I wish I was on that one. And wouldn't it be great if da-da-da-da-da? But I think in, in that, they make the assumption that they had the resilience to hold it through that period. I think Amazon's had, I don't quote me, but it's like two or three or maybe even four 50% drawdowns over its lifetime. We talked about REA just before. I could take, there's multiple other examples. but And then there's also, and that's self-selecting for the ones that ended up coming back and winning in the end. But there's, then there's like the Appens of the world that went from two bucks to 37 bucks and back to two bucks again. And you could have bought that at 10 bucks a share on the basis that it can't go much lower and it, you'd still lost 90% of your capital. So I think it's all very easy to look at a share price chart and say, oh, well, this was obvious, but I did it with a client once who was having a talk about, you know, picking trends in the market and I just picked random charts, took the date axes off it and just hid and then removed and hid and removed the future of what was going to happen and it's no better than a coin flip if you're just looking at prices. In fact, it's probably worse. So not saying that trend's not a good factor, not saying there's not ways to trade momentum, just saying that you probably can't do it and you probably should try and do something that like there's probably more sustainable ways to make money. Yeah, absolutely. I'd come across a lot of the studies on multi-baggers because they fascinate me. And I'm always looking at things like the consulting groups come out with this and the, the data crunches do a better job of it. But basically all of them seem to suggest that it's, like you said before, the fundamental growth only really starts to kick in after five to 10 years. So investors who are only looking at one thing, which is the share price, really tend to miss that. Or if they're focusing on fundamentals in a one to two year time frame, like it's really hard to find multi-bagging. And obviously you can't win. You can't find these multi-baggers with the intention of holding them for two or three years, which is, again, a bit surprising to me that a lot of professional investors say we only target returns over two to three years. I just think that's a little bit um, perplexing. But I just wanted to quickly run th- one thing off before I share my screen on something else. For On the ASX, I've got a list over 10 years of the top performing companies that are still listed, by the way. So Prometicus is 150 bagger at 15,000% returns. It's got to be listening to Rask. He'll tell you all about those nice and early. He's a real... <laughs> <laughs> Number two is a company I've never owned, which is Objective Corp at 2,200%. Altium, 1,700. Holy Novo, 1,700. Is it Clenuval? Yeah, for pharmaceuticals, yeah. Yeah, 1,100%. So those are the only five companies that are over 10 bag of status in the top over the last 10 years. They're inside the 200? Is that, is that the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's a lot more outside. Like there's actually yeah. a lot more. There's like, if you go down the next under 1,000%, right, you've got... Imogen, Dicadata, Aristocrat, Macquarie Technology, Zero, Supply Network, Jumbo, and the list just goes on and on and on. And there's heaps of those, heaps. And didn't you say to me off air a minute ago, what was the stat? Something like one in seven. Can you repeat that? So one in seven ASX listed companies end up being multi-baggers. So mm-hmm. it's not, and you can maybe put, give people a look at that table that Wayne in from MX Capital put up and yeah, you know, you can pretty much see like 15% of companies are actually 10 baggers. <laughs> so yeah. it's not as rare as people make it out to be. I think the problem is is the time and the resilience thing that we talk about and everybody wants to just be there 
for the bit where it goes hockey stick. And and that's kind of the the trick to active management, I suppose, is you know trying to be there for the bit where you generate all the returns and not for any other not for any other bits. But I also think that that's pretty unrealistic. You know, I always say to people just because. I've identified their companies undervalued. I can't ex- today. I can't expect everyone in the market to agree with me tomorrow. So it doesn't happen like that. It, ch- it takes time, and it takes time for people to change their mind about something. So yeah, I-, I just think that there's a lack of understanding around how actually these exceptional returns are generated and what goes into achieving them. It's all very easy with the other uh, benefit of hindsight. Absolutely. So of the three thousand five hundred from this is from MX Capital. Of the 3,545 companies, 81 or 2.3% got to 100 bagger status, which is incredible. 543 got to 10 bagger status. Again, incredible. And the things that jumped out at me is that consumer durables, industrial services, health services, and transportation, uh, retail trade as well, actually. So there's five there, were all like huge proportions of the uh, the 10 bagger status. So these are industries that you probably think to look at, I would say. Do you know I reckon why, why that is? Why is that? Is because the, it's it's a sample, I wouldn't call it a sample error, but it's a it's because of the period of which we are measuring the, the particular per- version of history that we're looking at. And, and that's a version of history where recent history is biased towards companies that have high long-term growth rates and benefit substantially from reducing risk-free rates so you know if you think about like there should be no utilities company that's a 10 bagger there's no reason for a utilities company yeah but there are seven of them but there are seven of them right and same with like technology services and and some of these other like durables like there's no reason for these businesses to be baggers but the reason they are is that they're defensive and that reduced return they've become like bond-like proxies and that's where i think we've seen these these re-rates, even Objective Court, which you mentioned before, is really a story about increasing quality of the business, not a story about necessarily, you know, ridiculous growth or some breakthrough technology or anything like that. Whereas like some of the other ones you mentioned on the ASX, the Polynovos and, and that sort of stuff. So obviously, yes, it's taken huge capital and, and you know, there's going to be some investors who aren't happy with the way those stocks have returned for them. But overall, they've been been really good investments for the simple fact they've had breakthrough kind of binary outcomes. The interesting thing there too, as I hear what you're saying, like if you think about like the hockey stick like tail, when we do the measurement, like a point in time, the hockey stick is the point where we would maybe measuring some of these companies. So like you said, their multiples, the valuations that we put on tech stocks right now versus 15 years ago, maybe are drastically higher because of interest rates, like you said. And because people believe the tech story no matter what. And so you get those massive stretched valuations that kind of stay stretched for longer than you economically think is viable. And so for a lot of folks, like when we do these point in time measurements, we're getting the, like not only the hindsight bias, but we're also getting the valuation bias that comes with um, these kind of companies, which again, if we go back to the, the list, like talking about like improving profits and reinvestment rate, that's so important to look through just the, the what the stock price has done over the past 10 years. I don't think raising money at, at high valuations should be discounted either. Like if you are a company that can raise a lot of money at a high valuation and you can use that to progress your project or progress your company or reinvest in a lot of marketing that allows you to acquire a whole bunch of new company customers which you can retain cheaply 
and generate referral work out of and off you go again. Well, it's actually a competitive advantage to be raising money at, at great prices and great treasury departments and businesses that are able to tap capital markets, whether you know, it's debt or equity for funding at the appropriate times is a real advantage. I think that all growth companies need to raise money. Like we, I don't think you need to be concerned about companies that raise capital. And if you only want to invest in mature businesses where they don't need to raise capital anymore and they've got all these quality kind of features, that's fine, but you, you can't expect to have the kind of strike rate that you know, you've seen in, at the smaller end of the market. So I think it's just making sure your expectations are set and then also just appreciating that raising capital is not always bad. It's just about raising it at the right times to achieve the right objectives and, and deploying that capital in a judicious way, which is going to add maximum value for shareholders. Mm. No, I like that. That's a good point. And we've seen that right in the United States with all the VC funding, and but then also just tapping normal shareholders and institutions on the shoulder to say, hey, we want to grow, we want to expand, we make this acquisition, whatever. Uh, I think that's normal. Like Even um, like Zero did this, no, that's a big winner. It was just outside that list. Zero did this with convertible notes, right? Huge, huge convertible notes. And a lot of these businesses do it along the way. I think it's just important, like you said, that vicious dilution. You just don't want to see huge dilution every time it happens. You want someone to be smart about it because it's just so much harder to come back if your share count goes from 100 to 200 million shares outstanding. You said in some like your email to me that the importance of having a strong investment thesis, if you're going to invest this way, is really important. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, How do people go wrong here when it comes to holding these businesses? Uh, I think they go wrong, first off, like in not holding them. If you're running a stop loss, for example, you're never going to hold any of these companies. You're never going to have one. Yeah, true. You know, you're always going to get stopped out. Well, like Amazon example or whatever you said before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like you're going to get stopped out, right? So if you insist on on doing that kind of thing, then having these, you know, sort of binary trigger points, you're just reacting to price and that proves you have no conviction. So we don't react to price. Like it's not about whatever the market does on a day-to-day basis is really pretty limited interest to us and you know, as I say to all the guys who work for me, don't spend your days staring at the red and green numbers. There's no money there. The money's in the work and, yeah, so, you know, I just encourage people to focus on that and, and, and not get caught up with it. But I think also sort of in answer to your question, when you're trying to, I suppose, invest in these kind of businesses for, for a longer period of time and you are prepared to ride that cycle, I think people need to be very aware of, how the business works, how the people involved are incentivized, what the longer-term strategy is, how the strategy is mapping to the changing environment. You know, just have a really clear picture of, is my thesis broken here? And people ask us at Seneca all the time, like, how do you sell stocks out of, you know, the Aussie shit, the large cap or the small cap fund? And it's like, well, at the end of the day, we don't. It's more just about if there's a breaching thesis. So our idea of where this company is going Are they still generally pretty much mapping to that? Yes or no? Does the allocation of resources and money and the way they spend money map to that? Yes or no? And if that thesis is intact, then it's really price is just an opportunity to top and tail. And that's kind of how we sort of look at it. But certainly knowing what you're doing, knowing what you're investing in, knowing how other stocks like that have behaved in the past gives you opportunities to to take profits at certain times. And there's kind of a few rules of thumb for different sectors and different types of investment, but certainly we're assessing each one sort of individually and thinking about each one individually at the time, weighing up 
what's the upside here if we just stick fat versus what's the downside if we sell and what are we giving up? And that, that's, that's kind of always the balance. Yeah, for sure. I was just thinking as you were saying that, maybe however you want to take this question, if it's you personally through the lens of the fund, is like what's been the most rewarding investment, like individual investment for you? So that could be like, the reason I phrase it that way is like, it could be like you could just be measuring percentage returns. It could be the thesis that's played out. It could be anything, whether it's in your professional like day-to-day for clients or you personally, a business or an investment that jumps out at you and is like, I'm, I'm so glad that went well and whatever. How would you think about that, answering that? Uh, I think it's kind of like life and this is super philosophical, but <laughs> and obviously, you know, everything we do at Seneca is to a small or large degree, tainted by my life and my experience and the way I go about <laughs> things. So whether you can think that's a positive or negative, I don't know. But when I think about like the money we've made and, and I've made at a lithium in this last sort of couple of years, that wasn't possible without the work that I started in 2010 on graphite and batteries and green electricity and uranium and like without those investments that I made and, you know, I was an early shareholder in, in Sarah Resources, SYR as well, and, you know, made a lot of money on, on that but sold well and, and, you know, did well on the back of, you know, having concerns around marketing risk, which I understood because I worked in commodity marketing before that. So it's all, it all kind of builds on each other and a good friend of mine who's uh, now company director of Ouvre, which is an asx uranium company, Peter Woods, and we worked together uh, and I was young and he was a couple of years older than me, he said to me, like, you don't make any money paper trading. And it's a bit of a funny statement, but the, the what he's trying to say there is, is that you don't learn anything. You don't, it's only when you've got your money up, it's only when you're trying to do this over and over again, you're looking at companies, you're looking at management, you're getting better, you're making mistakes, you're learning, you're going over and over again, that over 10 or I've been doing this for 15 years now, you start to get sort of a bit sharper at it and a bit better at it. And well, we saw it. we've got an IPO coming to market in the next week or two, fingers crossed, going on the ASX, which I'm super excited about. I think it's going to be a multi-bagger for us and I'm, I'm, I'm pumped about it. But at the same time, I never would have invested in that probably 10 years ago. So it's just about understanding, I suppose, how things evolve. And certainly lithium's been the best investment for me. Uh, Vulcan be the best of those investments for me in terms of multiples of my money. But again, I don't think it's fair or reasonable on any individual to think of themselves and say, I'm going to jump straight into that kind of stuff today because I've made plenty, dozens and dozens and dozens of mistakes along the way and that all averages into a return as well. You can't just cherry pick the times you were a legend because there's plenty of times that you're not. <laughs> Absolutely. Like you could have picked Appen on the way up, right, or Appen on the way down and the only difference was probably the timing, maybe a few management comments here or there about the outlook, but it still had the same sexy machine learning theme right along the way. So just this way, just like an incredible amount of humility comes along with this. All right, look, so I do want to pick your brains on one company that you sent through and you made a comment that hunting for multi-baggers doesn't have to be about finding the sexiest business, which is a lot of the time what people go for. They just go like, what's cool? What's emerging? This business is so unsexy. This is like the, the this, is, this is literally like the core, like a, Chris, what do you call it? Like just a biscuit plane. <laughs> so boring. But. Yeah, okay. So this is like the Sakatar of... Um, this is the Sakatar of the ISX. This is okay. The- yeah, okay. What is it? <laughs> what, what, what would be so lucky to have that title? 
Look, Fiducian, essentially it's a licensee, advice, funds management, kind of aggregated, vertically integrated finance business. <laughs> it's sort of, again, founder-owned and led and certainly, you know, it's been a, it's done 930% return versus the All Lords 192 since kind of 2012. Um, <laughs> so it's been an exceptionally good performer. It's paid great dividends along the way and it's pretty unloved. <laughs> Pretty, pretty under the radar. I don't think like a, maybe like a couple of small brokers cover it and it's been a, a really good performer, good business. Uh, management are good at getting around, really transparent. We understand it because it's sort of not dissimilar to what we do. Uh, we're a licensee as well. We're in funds management as well. We're in advice as well. So, you know, we have a pretty good understanding of how they operate. Good reputation in the market, good products, uh, good returns. So I think it's more. It's not so much that oh, that's a great buy at the moment. It, look, it is in our portfolio. We do like it, but you know, I'm not saying that it's a, it's going to triple x, you know, triple tomorrow or anything like that. It's more just an example of a company that probably you haven't heard of. It's not brain chip. It's not some lithium thing. It's not Polynovo or you know one of these other biotechs that I don't. Everyone tells me that Mesa Blast is great and all they seem to do is print stock, not money. I think it's just one of those boring companies that everyone kind of forgets about where you could have pretty much 10 extra money over the last 10 years. It's What's crazy about this is I just did a bit of a look because I have heard about it a few times and it probably did, didn't did pass the sniff test of it. It's not exciting enough. Now, it's, also run by, I'm gonna, it's also run by like a couple of Indian guys, which I reckon they get a bit of a rough run with fund managers and people because they've got an accent. I mean, I, I sort of always sold coal to India. I love Indian people, but I do think that, that you know, they get a bit of a, a rough run from the uh, the rich white guys in Turak. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's also a um, a company that, as far as I could just tell with a quick Google and a look on market index, looks like it's under 200 mil market cap still. I don't know if that's free float adjusted or not, but when you think about that, to almost 10x and still be under 200 mil and to be consistent performer over time, this is the type of thing that always goes straight onto my watch list because to have done it consistently over 10 years, as you said, is Great. It's not one of these things that have just come up with an idea and has, you know, one point six billion dollar market cap with ten thousand dollars of cash receipts. Like, <laughs> like, it's a really, really interesting business. So that's definitely gone on there, and I, I really like that, mate. So thank you for um, for sharing that with us. So let's just recap. We talked about some of the factors that go into building a watch list. Probably the one thing you mentioned, you've had a lot of losers along the way to get to some of those. Easy, I want to give, give the ego a bit of a kick now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true, right? Like, particularly, yeah. I think what people can take away from this episode is that there are many different ways to invest, and this would simply not be for everyone. Like, that's why you would pay a professional. If you're interested in it and you believe in it, which a lot of the data says that you should, then you would pay a professional if you don't have the stomach to do it yourself, right? Definitely not for everyone. Definitely, like, it's super. It, like, yeah, it's not even for me half the time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it because it is so gut-wrenching. Like like you said, like you mentioned a really interesting point there and I forgot to bring it up before. It was about like Amazon having all those drawdowns. I remember Jeff Bezos was asked about how far his stock had fallen in the dot-com crash. It fell like 90%. And he said, well, I wasn't worried because I'd already done the capital raising. So, you know, so he'd already raised capital at such a high price. And then during the crash, he was able to invest it at, at more compelling rates, which was... I think a lot of people just looking at the share price would be like, this thing's toast, not realizing that you've got this awesome owner operator who's able to reinvest at a high rate and has capital to go. And it's, I'm just ticking off all the things here. It's a small cap. It was in a growing industry, which I, I mentioned it's got it had extreme customer loyalty. Like 
you look at all these things, it was ticking all those boxes, but people who just looked at the share price got that way wrong. One final thing, maybe I'll double click on here, Luke, is that you mentioned that you can't really like, if you're going to do this yourself, it's really important that you have your thesis, whether you write it down, which I'd say is a good idea, but just to have it written down or just to actually formulate it properly so you can refer back to it. At the first sign of something going wrong, if you haven't written down your thesis, you're going to sell. As far as I could tell, I've, I've never been able to hold through and see a company through its worst parts uh, if I haven't written it down. And your thesis is like, oh, it's going up or my mate told me or <laughs> like, you know, uh, the broker research says or whatever, like a hot copper or a Twitter or whatever, you know, so-and-so owns it. Like you're not going to do well. You're just not like because you're not going to have the fortitude to to hold it because you know, that's no that's no thesis. So writing writing it writing it down, having a spreadsheet, having a you know word doc or whatever, where you okay, these are the companies that I want to stick with, but having the discipline as well that if I see X, Y, or Z, that to me is going to be a breach of thesis. Mm. It's going to result in me selling half my position. Yeah, you know? and that's the sort of thesis that even if you make those triggers too sensitive or too weak, you'll learn, adjust, and next time you'll get better and better and better. I was just about to say, that. it's kind of like you said before, where you kind of have to earn it. It's like the earned pattern recognition. Like you can all go and read a book about value investing, about- Under baggers, yeah. Yeah, you could go and read that book, but until you've actually done it and you've seen it, both the good and the bad, it's never going to truly like sear into your brain so that the next time you can get better and better and better and better and better. And that compound is what's valuable as Luke's demonstrated today. This is always a blast when we have a chat like this. And this was probably the most fun chat I've had with you for a while because it was just kind of back and forth and you got the data to back it up here, which is super great. Uh, if people want to get into contact in contact with you, there's a link in the show notes, Seneca uh, Financial Solutions, if I'm not mistaken. You're always doing well for us, though, and I appreciate that, Mike. Get in contact with Luke. He uh, He's, uh, well, I could say you're probably, you're a native of Perth, but you live in Melbourne or on the coast, which is great, uh, but you get all around the country. So um, you're up in the Sunshine Coast a few weeks ago when you just spoke to us. So don't be telling everyone my secrets on about it. Yeah. This is how you get on the good this is how you find the multibaggers. You have to get on the road. You gotta you gotta get on the road, man. I mean the, <laughs> the Sunshine Coast is the home of multibaggers, as you know. As you know. It's all tax deductible when we fly there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mate, no, this is heaps of fun. So links in the show notes, get in contact with Luke, talk stocks, talk whatever with him, uh, and check out Seneca. Mate, heaps of fun. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Alan. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.